let's get straight into it um, and start by looking at the background to the book. We don't know a lot about Joel other than we think he lived in or around Jerusalem in or around the 8th century. Um, by this, I mean that historians and theologians don't know a lot about Joel, not that I haven't bothered preparing for this this morning. Um, theologians think that the book was written somewhere between 780 and 740 BC, uh, during the reign of King Uzziah. King Uzziah was the 10th king of the southern kingdom, and when the book was written, um, it was a great period of expansion and prosperity in the kingdom. The main thing that we know about King Uzziah is that he was a fantastic military strategist. And so this was a huge period of prosperity, not just militarily, but also administratively, commercially, and economically. It was a great period for Judah. But often, as we see so often, on one hand we get great prosperity. On the other hand, we see a time of spiritual, moral, and social corruption. This was the place where Joel was writing from. And the period that we think he's writing from is just after uh, a locust attack on the area of Judah. It's a short book, it's just three chapters, and the first chapter and a half of this book talk about this locust attack, and then Joel uses this to, uh, to, to give a lesson from God to the people of Judah. The second half of the book talks about why this happened and what God's response to it was. So, let's look at it. As I said, uh, there has been this plague of locusts which has hit Judah and led to famine throughout the region. Um, they've just gone through this huge period of prosperity, but now because of the plague, suddenly there's famine in the area. And Joel says, he prophesies, that this is because the people of Judah aren't living God's way and have taken God's blessing for granted. Also, the fact that God sent locusts is in itself significant because that was one of the ten plagues that... Um, was used to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. So when they attacked Israel, it was like God was saying, look at you, you've done this so badly, you're no better than the Egyptians. Now, one of the things that it's worth doing when you're talking about such a story as this is to look at whether it actually happened or not. Lots of the stories in the Bible are allegorical, but lots of them are historical narrative. And so when you read this story, you think a plague of locusts that is so bad that it devastates all the food in the region and leads to famine. Come on, this looks ridiculous, doesn't it? So, obviously, what I did was Googled it. Locust invasion, enter, video on YouTube, have a look at it. So it turns out it actually happens, right? <laughs> There's a video on YouTube of Madagascar, the place, not the Disney film. Look at me. Now I have kids, I know names of Disney films. Um, but anyway, Madagascar. And in 2013, there was a genuine, actual locust invasion. And I read this news report and watched this video, and the video said that they, they reckon there were 500 billion locusts in Madagascar, and that they covered, um, they took 100,000 tons of vegetation every single day and it took 45 minutes for the swarm of locusts to pass through an area. I was going to show the video that I watched, but it's really not very nice. <laughs> so I thought I would leave that there. But, you know, the point is, it actually does happen. A plague of locusts is a real historical thing. So in chapter 2, Joel uses this plague to warn the people of Judah. Uh, unless the people repent and quickly, enemy armies will devour the land like the locusts did. Joel says to the people, 
fast, humble yourselves, seek God's forgiveness, and if you respond, all will be okay and God's blessing will return. Then the end of the chapter looks at what the future will be like for Judah if they repent. Now, there's some good stuff in here, and uh, maybe not so good stuff as well. Um, to start with, here's some verses from the end of the chapter 2 where Joel is prophesying about what it will be like when the day of the Lord comes. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a fantastic promise, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I've heard those words said in lots of churches on lots of occasions over the years. It is a fantastic promise. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, remember what a huge thing that would have been to say in those times. Even on my servants, both men and women, remember what a huge thing that would have been to say at those times. Even on both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days promise for young and old, a promise for men and women, even a promise for servants. But in the middle of those verses, there's another two. Verses 30 and 31. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. We get to chapter 3, which is more of the same. Matt's going to come and read to us. Uh, these are verses 9 to 21 from chapter 3. More good and more bad. This, let's not forget, is the word of the Lord spoken through Joel. Um, if anyone is following, it's on page nine, uh, 915. Um, so starting at verse 9, it says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full, and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion, and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste. 
because of the violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. Thanks, Matt. Particularly well done on Jehoshaphat and Acacias. Um, one of the most interesting verses in this bit is verse 10, where God is preparing the people of Israel for war. And he says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Basically, take the things you use for farming and instead turn them into weapons. Now, one of the reasons that I think this is interesting is because a hundred years before this, another man called Isaiah also prophesied the word of the Lord to the people of Israel. And in the beginning of his prophecy, which we know as chapter 2, and verse 4, Isaiah says, And God shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now in Isaiah, that is a beautiful image, isn't it? In fact, it's such a powerful image that people have genuinely started putting this into practice. There's a group of Mennonite women in the States, um, older ladies who genuinely go around and find knives and guns and things and turn them into tools for working the land. Uh, a lot of you will know uh, a writer called Shane Claiborne who's spoken here a few times and uh, he's based in Philadelphia with a, a kind of collective called The Simple Way and they've started doing this. They, um, they actually call for a gun amnesty in Philadelphia where they live um, and there are videos and stories of them turning AK-47 assault rifles into pitchforks so they can grow veg. It's a fantastic thing. But the thing is, in Joel, it's the opposite. Joel says that God says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Now, the book of Joel was written about, we think, about 100 years after Isaiah. So we're only a hundred years later, a couple of generations later, and these same descendants of Jacob are doing the exact opposite of what Isaiah told them to do. So what's that all about? Has God changed his mind? Has God decided that, you know, the whole peace thing, well, it was just a fad and, you know, it never really worked, did it? So why don't we try the war route instead? Is that what God's thinking? Because, you know, if we're honest, this idea about turning plowshares into swords and pruning hooks into spears, well, that idea, actually, you can find that kind of idea quite a lot of places in the Old Testament, can't you? That doesn't really look that out of place. Nor some of the verses that come after that, some of which Matt read. Prepare for war, rouse the warriors, let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Come quickly, all you nations from every side. Bring down your warriors, for there I will sit in judgment on all the nations. Swing the sickle, trample the grapes, so great is their wickedness. 
The day of the Lord is near. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. Or another bit of Joel chapter 2. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea. And its stench will go up. Its smell will rise, says the God of love. Unfortunately, and you know, it is a bit awkward, isn't it? Because we do go around saying that God is love. But this kind of thing happens quite a lot. Because if I'm honest, there are quite a lot of bits of the Old Testament that I don't really like. Numbers 31, for example. Numbers 31 starts with God telling Moses to take vengeance on the Midianites. Apparently, the Midianites have killed an Israelite called Zimri. So in what the UN would definitely not deem to be a proportionate response, Israel responds to the killing of one citizen by, and I will read it, going to war with Midian and killing every man, capturing every woman and child and burning every town. Now, when the army returns, Moses is angry. Now, you might think that Moses would be angry. Moses, let's not forget, is the same guy who a bit later walks up a mountain, comes down with some stones which we call the Ten Commandments, one of which says, do not kill. Pretty straightforward, right? But no, the reason that Moses is angry, Moses, the great hero of our faith, is because the army haven't killed all the women and all the boys. So he sends the army back to Midian, and they kill all the women and all the boys. Isn't it a great inspirational story? It's, it's the kind of story that we really should be telling at Kids Church next week, don't you think? But actually, this is small fry compared to some of the stories that we do tell at Kids Church, like Noah, Noah and the Ark. So, let's not forget the story about Noah. Uh, Apart from Noah and his family and the onboard zoo, God wipes out every man, woman, child and animal on the face of the earth. There's a great quote from Brian McLaren when he talks about the Noah's Ark story, and it's going to come up. Uh, A God who mandates an intentional supernatural disaster leading to unparalleled genocide is hardly worthy of belief, much less worship. How can you ask your children or your non-church colleagues and neighbours to honour a deity so uncreative, overreactive and utterly capricious or fickle regarding life? Lots of people have tried to do the sums, and the conclusion reached is that in the Bible, God is responsible for 2,821,364 deaths, plus all the bits that we don't know about, like Noah's Ark, where it was just everyone, where there's no number attached. The estimate is, they reckon it's probably about 25 million people, but God, in our Bible that we read every day, hopefully, is responsible for killing. Anyone want to guess on the number that Satan is responsible for? Hands up, shout out. We're in a school building someday. Anyone? The answer is 10. And that's a story from the book of Job, where kind of as part of a bet, God allows Satan to kill some people. So we have a problem, don't we? Because the God of the Old Testament often doesn't appear to be much of a God of love. 
He doesn't even appear to be very nice a lot of the time. I have two daughters. If either of those came home and said they were going on a date with Old Testament God, I probably wouldn't be very happy. <laughs> I might actually ground them. You never know. So how do we explain it? Because there's got to be more to these stories, haven't there? There's got to be more than what I've just read out so far. Otherwise, we should just probably pack up and go home now. And, you know, I work for the church, so please don't do that, because I'd probably be out of a job and probably find it a little difficult to explain to Louise how uh, I don't have a job anymore, because I told everyone to pack it up and go home. So for the sake of my job and my marriage, if nothing else, here is an explanation, hopefully. Firstly, the Bible does show us that God reveals more and more and more of himself as the scripture narrative progresses. There's a great example of this that's pretty central to our faith, and that's the development of the Trinity. In Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, chapter 6, verse 4, God is one. Then there's the incarnation. Jesus is born, and God is now two. Then we get to the day of Pentecost in the second chapter of Acts, and the Holy Spirit descends on the followers of Jesus. God is now three. God reveals more of himself over time. Throughout the Bible, what we see is a progressive revelation of who he is. And what this shows us is that our understanding of God expands as time goes on. Another quote from Brian McLaren. When we ask why God appears so violent in some passages of the Bible, we can suggest this hypothesis. If the human beings who produced these passages were violent and genocidal in their own development, they would naturally see God through the lens of their experience. The fact that those disturbing descriptions are found in the Bible doesn't mean that we're stuck with them. This approach helps us see the biblical library as the record of a series of trade-ups. People courageously letting go of the state-of-the-art understanding of God when an even better understanding begins to emerge. I love this idea that we have all these stories, but it's never settled. There's always more to learn. I think this is not just a helpful response, but actually it's a pretty exciting one as well. What we're doing is we're wrestling here with a collection of stories, poems, and letters written over thousands of years, written thousands and thousands of years ago. And we still haven't worked out all the answers. But hopefully, we're getting there. Hopefully, the response of us in 2015 is different to the response of those followers of God in numbers. I mean, you know, we still see that a literal reading of these texts can cause huge problems, don't we? I mean, if we want a big picture example, you just need to go and read some of the quotes from George W. Bush and Tony Blair about how God told them to start a war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, it's not just Christians, is it? This isn't really too dissimilar in some respects from the Islamic extremists whose literal reading of the Quran led them to murder some cartoonists at a magazine in Paris a couple of weeks ago. But on the whole, hopefully we're getting there. Um, as we all know, there was huge opposition in the church to the anti-slavery bill a few hundred years ago. And now surely you'd hope that all Christians would agree that slavery is not of God. Um, the majority of evangelicals would now agree that women could lead churches, which certainly wasn't a position that the majority would be found in X number of years ago. And the number of Christians who are in support of the full acceptance of LGBT Christians continues to increase. 
Now, I know we're not there yet, especially with regards to acceptance of gay Christians, but I hope you would agree that we are moving in the right direction. We are trading up. Because, just as I finish, there's another biblical precedent for this. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on the followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. And Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, stands up in front of a crowd of Jews. And he starts by quoting from a Hebrew scripture that those Jews would have known really well. He quotes from the book of Joel. And after he quotes from Joel, he goes on to say this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. You want an example of a trade-up to a better understanding of God? Peter and his contemporaries accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Despite everything they would have been thinking, despite everything their families and friends would have told them, despite the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots and all the other religious leaders telling them that they were wrong, that they were crazy, that they were walking away from careers, they were walking away from everything to follow this guy. What did they do? They traded up their state-of-the-art experience and understanding of God and followed a man that they thought was the Messiah. I think the lesson is always, always, always be willing to question. Don't settle. There's a great quote from uh, a Catholic priest, Father Vincent Donovan, and he says this, Never accept and be content with unanalyzed assumptions, assumptions about the work, about the people, about the church or Christianity. Never be afraid to ask questions about the work we've inherited or the work we're doing. There is no question that should not be asked or that is outlawed. The day we are completely satisfied with what we have been doing, the day we have found the perfect, unchangeable system of work, the perfect answer, never in need of being corrected again, on that day, we will know that we are wrong, that we have made the greatest mistake of all. We're wrestling with a collection of stories poems and letters, written over thousands of years, written thousands of years ago, and we still haven't worked out all the answers. But as long as we're seeking Jesus and trying to find his heart in this, I think that that's okay. Because, and I'll end with this, this is what Joel said and what Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost about those who seek after God. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy.